Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. I am Cecile Fropitais and I lead the business of YouTube in EMEA, which is Europe, the Middle East and Africa. And of course, YouTube is uh, part of Google. So welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Series. Cecile, thank you very much. It's great having you on the series. One of the conversations I also enjoyed very much, I know we're going to have a lot of fun, was Kevin Roberts, who is just a ball of fire and energy. And he spoke very highly of you, particularly your six years as the um, global CEO of Fremantle, which everybody uh, may not know, but they would certainly know X Factor, American Idol, Pop Idol. And to cope with the uh, big personalities there, that takes quite some character. Uh, you've also been to INSEAD and you've got a, a background in strategy and all sorts of things you've done. You've had a fascinating career. But I'm really thrilled to have you on the series. So tell us a little bit about your life, your upbringing, how it shaped the leader you are today. And, and, and on the journey, maybe about sort of 10 minutes or so, the journey of, of going into interesting places like um, the role you had at Fremantle and, and how you were just, um, you had to learn as you went along. Over to you really, Cecile. Thank you, Jonathan, and I should say a big thank you to Kevin, who's uh, clearly very, very generous with his uh, comments. So look, I've had, I've been really, really fortunate in life. Um, I've had, I don't know if it's one career, I've had different careers or several chapters, I guess, in my career. Um, and I suppose uh, if I start from the beginning, I'm, you know, I'm French national, you know, regular French girl, um, born in France, educated in France, uh, probably so one of the defining um, parts of my life was that as a child, uh, my family moved to the US for three years. And that was quite defining because I was eight. Um, I didn't speak a word of English. I was thrown into this American school, uh, not understanding a single word. I had to learn English quickly, how to learn how to adapt. Um, you know, in those days, the world, the, world, the world was not as global, so you were exposed to a different culture. So I think that was quite defining. And I always mention this because I think you know, very often when I talk to people about careers and, and they're considering a move in a different country, they're very reluctant. And then they say things like, well, you know, our children are in school, so, so we couldn't possibly sort of relocate. And I always say to them, your kids are going to be fine, right? The kids are not the problem. You're the problem, right? So you have to sort of change your mindset. And, you know, and actually, so very often having these experiences in a different place, in a different context, where you're forced to put yourself outside of your comfort zone and be really uncomfortable um, for a while, I think it's the best thing that can happen to you as a human being, because at the end, it's the best sort of learning experience. And so I think that sort of shaped, I think, my choices quite fundamentally, because once you go through an experience like that, you're a lot less scared of 
that sort of big jump that sometimes you feel you're making um, in a career. So, so that's, you know, one sort of, I think, important chapter. Um, you know, I started my career as a management consultant, um, like a lot of people in business, and I did it for you know, like four, four and a half years. Um, it was fine. Um, you know, I enjoyed it. It was intellectually sort of interesting. Um, but even though I was quite young, I had enough, I think, uh, self-awareness to realize that it wasn't for me or or let me put it, that it wasn't what I aspired to do. And I think for me, the, the really deciding kind of factor was when I looked at the leadership of the firm, you know, they were incredibly accomplished, very smart consultants and executives. But for me, um, I just couldn't see myself. They, they weren't sort of role models. I couldn't sort of see myself aspiring to be that person you know, in a number of years. And, and so I think I realized fairly early that what really excited me was to jump into the fire. And when you're in consulting, you don't really jump into the fire ever, right? And I wanted to be in there, right? I wanted to be hard. I wanted to kind of feel the pain. I wanted to own the process, the, you know, the stuff that goes wrong, but also the stuff that goes well. Um, so so I, that's why I decided to go to NCAD, get the MBA, and then try to kind of go into industry. And then I was, I guess I was lucky. Um, I, was, I was lucky and I was quite determined. I was really clear about um, those choices. And so I joined the Pearson Group, um, you know, big sort of publishing company. They own a TV business. And you know, fairly quickly, I found myself um, in the TV company, which then began free, became Fremantle. And, and then within that journey, um, again, I think it was a mix of what I talked about earlier, which is not being afraid to jump into the fire, but also um, being lucky enough to work with people who you know, became mentors and really gave me a chance. And gave me a chance even though you know, on paper, I had none of the qualifications. And, you know, I always sort of think of that, you know, now that I'm in a position of leadership is, you know, I think of just seeing the potential in somebody and, you know, not making decisions based on experience, but on competencies and people's potential. Um, so leaving aside, you know, what we often do is the experience and the personality piece. And I was lucky enough to have a boss who, you know, was that kind of person and gave me my first break in an operational job. And, uh, and so just, I was just gonna build on that because it, it is interesting when you have good mentors or a good boss. And even though, as you said, you know, don't be afraid to jump into the fire. You didn't have any of the qualifications that others would have. You're going into TV and it's a, it's a big area but they believed in you and they gave you a chance. What is it it's taught you about when you hire people in YouTube as part of Google? I know they've got all their processes, but um, do, do you give people a chance now like you were given a chance? Is that, is that your aspiration? Yes, yeah, so I think, look, there was obviously this experience. Um, and actually throughout my, you know, once I led Fremantle for those six years as the global CEO, and I, you know, 
I and the team, the leadership, we must have changed probably 80% of the senior leadership of the company globally. Again, the one lesson there is I've had the most success when I gave a chance to people who were hungry, um, had that potential, but weren't quite, actually weren't quite ready, right? They hadn't done it before. But those ultimately were the most successful hires. Yeah. And, you know, I think jumping to today, where, you know, we're by OT, I'm part of YouTube, part of Google, um, you know, we do a fair amount of hiring. We're very focused on, you know, hiring with a lot better representation, you know, whether it's gender, whether, you know, it's racial representation. And, I think it's very easy in a hiring process to look at a resume and to look at experience. And especially, you know, plus like Google, you get a lot of inbounds, right? And so, you know, you have to triage it. And it's very easy to look at the piece of paper and say, doesn't have the experience. And the reality is more often than not, it's actually irrelevant. And certainly if you if you want to make a shift from the representation standpoint, you, you have to start to break you know, and to deconstruct some of those behaviors because there's a lot of inherent bias in those behaviors. So look, it's easier said than done, but I think as a leader, you have a real responsibility to you know, make those changes and to you know, lead by example in, in again, sort of giving individuals a chance. Yeah, and and then in in your journey and all the different jobs you've done, of course, many people be fascinated. And YouTube is a great brand, and Google is a great brand. Uh, and obviously, I use YouTube a lot. This video itself is going to go onto YouTube uh, later on tonight. Um, but but when you were in Fremantle with things like Expatriate and stuff, so much learning. And, and there would be, I'm sure, some moments of great joy and happiness and also some darker moments when it was tougher for you in, in your career as a whole. And clearly will protect the, the guilty. But I'd just be interested in what was a moment of great joy and happiness for you? And then what was uh, a moment uh, in your career or in your personal life of, of quite tough times, but yet you learned something from both situations? Look... Thank God there were lots of moments that of sort of great joy. Um, you know, I was lucky enough um, to be in Los Angeles um, in 2001. So actually before 9-11, um, obviously going through 9-11 and the consequences of that, um, you know, on the US, on the business, you know, et cetera. And then in the year that followed, you know, being part of that core team that launched American Idol. And, you know, Idol became probably the biggest television phenomenon that the US had known since MASH probably. Really? Uh, and so being part of that journey, that story, you know, brought a lot of joy um, and also a lot of challenges because anytime you have something that is that successful, you know, some, it brings out the worst um, in, in people, um, you know, that's that's the that's the reality. In, in fact, just just picking up on that, somebody said to me the other day that they say that power 
corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But actually power like success reveals and, and actually the people are like that anyway, but certain success reveals quite dark sides to people as well as lovely sides to people. And I'm sure you've seen the, the good of people, but also you've seen some very much prima donna, just unacceptably arrogant behavior and treatment of other people. Yeah, I think that the danger, the reality, right, is any time something is a success, it's a team effort, right? Especially, I mean, I think it's true in all businesses. Um, you know, it's definitely true in sort of television. But then you find this sort of human thing where, you know, a lot of people want to make it about themselves, their, you know, their own personal success, there's agendas. Um, and especially, you know, that circumstance had a lot of different stakeholders and different stakeholders with interests that lied in different places. Um, and so that made, it made things operationally and on a day-to-day -day quite complicated. And look, I was fairly new to all of this. And, and so navigating it at the beginning, I think was something I found, I found challenging. I had to find my way, I had to find my place. And, and then down the road, I think just going back to your question about some sort of darker moments for our company, for Fremantle, American Idol was incredibly important. Um, you know, it was a big part of the business. And you know, when I took over as a CEO, the show by then was 10 years old. It was still a big part of the business, but it had peaked, right? It was on the decline. And, and so the narrative, both internally, externally, was really about, you know, you're this company that has these big franchises, but mostly their best days are behind you. And so, you know, you're facing this declining business and, you know, what are you going to do about it? So the mission of the challenge was really about how you pivoted the business so that it could sort of grow again. But within that, um, you know, there was some big decisions to be made about the future of the franchise, of the Idol franchise. Because what was happening is, you know, it was still on Fox. Um, the ratings were not what they were. Um, it was still doing a good job for the network, um, but obviously not what it used to do. And it was an expensive show for them. So the conversation with the network became about just how can you make it for less money? Right? So there was no kind of path forward. That was an aspirational path forward. It was just purely about how do you just reduce the cost of this thing? And for me, that was probably one of the harder decisions that I've had to make um, because, you know, basically what we had to do is we had to, to say, well, we're not going to make it anymore, right? We, this is a conversation that is, the law, it's a law of diminishing returns. It's death by a thousand cuts. And having the awareness that ultimately it was important to preserve the brand and yes, we could have made it for cheaper, right? Yes, we could have probably found a way forward and kept it on the air for a few more years. But in doing so, we would have really damaged the brand. And I had such conviction that the brand was really valuable that to me, it was really obvious that the right thing to do 
was actually to leave a little earlier, but with our head high. But that was really, it's easy to tell the story now after the fact, um, but it was a, it was, you know, fairly unusual because mostly, you know, as a content producer, you try to kind of keep it going as long as possible. It's not a great conversation with your shareholder, right? Um, because the shareholder looks at, you know, they look at the year's earnings and, you know, to say to them, listen, we're actually going to stop early um, because trust me is the right thing to do because trust me, you know, believe in the value of the brand um, was, uh, that was not an easy conversation. And I think, you know, we also created a lot of resentments, you know, on the network side, um, because again, there probably would have been a path forward where we could have made it for less but we would have cheated the audience. So that was my belief. So anyway, so that was quite a tough, yeah. um, a tough time to like voluntarily just, you know, say we're just going to not do this thing and it's going to really have a big PNL impact. But then the story has a happy ending because, you know, that last season did really well because it was the last one, it was the farewell. And then we were able to bring the show back two years later and actually it's still on the air now. So. Right. So, so I tell the story because I think, you know, for me, it is a, one of my kind of key kind of leadership um, tenants in there, which is about having really strong convictions yeah. and just really grounding yourself in those convictions and just not letting, sometimes a lot of rational arguments right that can sway you so what well, if you can make another year and if you actually you know why not right it, 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 there's a lot of noise right that can kind of get in the way of those convictions are perfectly rational arguments and and especially from a business standpoint right but that thing of like having that inner north star and grounding yourself in it i think is incredibly important and again, having that long-term perspective and just kind of knowing uh, what that North Star is and what they're going for. So it, it's a, it was a tough one, but I think, again, it's got a happy ending and I think there's a lot of interesting lessons in it. Yeah, great. Uh, such a, a lovely tale. And of course, we've all been great fans of it and watched it at great length. I, I was interested in your story of, of growing up um, and, and being in another country like America but you were French speaking and you didn't understand much of what was said. I, I don't know whether you've yet read Chinese Cinderella. Give me a thumbs up if you read Chinese Cinderella. Oh, you must no. read it. So I was recommended it by another lady who tragically um, lost her brother to drugs. He, his, uh, he became brain dead from drugs at age 18. And uh, she set up a charity, but she talked about her own tough upbringing and she recommended Chinese Cinderella, which I've been listening to, I'm dyslexic, so my way of learning is audiobooks uh, or watching YouTube or whatever it is. And, and she was a Chinese girl who was going to French schools in China, in Shanghai in 1943, when the French concessions and all that kind of stuff. So she spoke a lot of French, but didn't speak much Chinese. And then she went to Hong Kong and things, but she had a tough time. And it's a great read. You must read it. Chinese Cinderella. So that's my, my tip for you. Um, as you were thinking back to when you were just 18, uh, which is always quite a formative stage as people are thinking of going into business and you were going into strategy and then on, on to INSEAD and things like that. What bit of advice would you give your 18 year old young self 
from all that you've learned now and all the experiences, the good times, the joyous times in, in X Factor and American Idol and things like that, and, and then now your time in YouTube, Google, what, what advice would you give? One bit of advice. I think maybe to embrace being an outsider ah. as opposed to feeling insecure about being an outsider. And I say that because, so my parents were, my father was a research scientist and my mother was a biologist. So very much a scientific family. I chose to go into business. Obviously I was a woman. Um, I went to what's called a grande école in France, a business um, grande école. And when I got in, actually, uh, one of my uncles said to my mother, why is she doing that? She's a woman. It's completely pointless. What? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And look, it was all, you know, all battles, not that long ago, right? But, um, but so, again, I said that because, you know, A, you know, I came from the, the scientific family. I wasn't coming from the world of business. I went to Paris. Um, in these grandes écoles, a lot of the students were from business families. The parents were in business. So again, I was very much, A, I was from the provinces. Um, uh, I was one of the few students who had to take a loan to pay for the fees. Um, and so I was, I was an outsider. And I think there's a lot of strength, actually, in being an outsider because you get to redefine yourself. You, you know, you can play by different rules. Um, and so I would, I would actually advise my younger self to find more joy in being an outsider. Yeah, great, great advice. I love that one. And I've often found myself an outsider at different times. And it does somehow drive me to prove myself. And, and, and you need that kind of grit in the oyster to produce the pearl. Um, I'm then going to ask you questions around the inspiring leadership compass which has eight elements to it um and, and it's it's highly correlated with high performance and you are undoubtedly a high performer mq is the first area the moral quotient the integrity the values the beliefs what what values and beliefs have you been brought up with or lived by and what have you done when you've let them slip and how do you get yourself back on course again so look um I think it's probably a kind of fairly kind of long list, but I think for me, some of the really, really matter um, is, I mean, you might call it integrity. You might call it to be trustworthy. For me, there'd be nothing worse than if people, if people thought I wasn't trustworthy. So that thing of being transparent about what you are going to do and then doing what you said you were going to do is incredibly important. And I hold myself to a pretty high standard when it comes to that. And I also hold others to a pretty high standard. Um, and I think it's really important in leadership because I think you have to build trust. First and foremost, you have to build trust. And you know, whether it's your peers, whether it's your teams, people need to believe you're going to do the right thing. Yeah. And again, so that's something that's always been really, really important. Um, 
to me. And again, sort of going back to those American Idol days, whereby you know I I had been basically thrown into this situation by the company because you know I was there. Um, I was the most senior person there at the time who could um, you know pick, take, pick up the show. You had all these different sort of stakeholders with different agendas. And the corporation I worked for was in conflict with one of the stakeholders. And so the, and the conflict was located at headquarters in London. I was in Los Angeles. But the conflict, of course, invaded everything to do with the franchise and the management of the franchise. And so the first year, you know, I was in this conflict, right? And it made things incredibly difficult to manage. And so again, I, pretty quickly, I made a choice, which was a very personal choice, which was to say, regardless of the corporate conflict, I'm actually going to, I'm going to build trust, I'm going to build bridges, I'm going to find common ground, and my North Star is going to be to do the right thing by the television show. And if I do that, then ultimately the corporation will benefit. So I'm going to eliminate all this noise, right, from this conflict that's just poisoning, you know, the day-to-day. -day. And I'm just going to focus on, again, building the trust and just focusing on doing the right thing. Yeah. And, and you and I have talked before. We have, we've had some great chats already. Um, in many of the organizations I come across, occasionally somebody is a, a narcissist, uh, what we'd even call a white-collar psychopath. Uh, it's all about them. They're, they're a bit like Donald Trump, but in a smaller way, uh, and, and yet highly persuasive. I mean, Trump is a great... Someone described him, I think it was Scott Adams who, who wrote um, Dilbert, talks about how he's a master persuader. Doesn't like him particularly, but he just saw the skills he used. And I've seen this both as CEOs or um, surgeons or pilots or whatever. They can be highly charming, persuasive. Uh, I worked for a general who was like this, but a nasty, nasty, evil piece of work. Um, but they get to the highest levels because they like power, they like status, and they love the uh like you saw trump beaming as everybody was loving him and he was on stage and bigging it up and um you know nigel farage was there and the two of them were were in their element um but it makes things toxic and others suffer so they're fine they don't have any car crashes but they see lots of car crashes around them people breaking down and having nervous breakdowns what without again without naming names but what what has been your experience of those kind of narcissistic characters and when things go toxic and it comes back again to this moral integrity what, what's been your experience I mean, look, there's no question that in the entertainment business you know you find you know people who have you know big egos i actually think you need to have a big ego to survive in some parts of the entertainment industry right i think to put yourself especially when you're on screen right to put yourself out there you know, on screen every day requires a certain sense of self, right? And of confidence with over time can 
go from just having self-confidence to sort of what you're describing or some of the behaviors that you're describing. And I think then what you find is people become quite isolated. And that's when you get into the danger zone, right? Where they're isolated, they have, they're surrounded by people who tell them what they want to hear, not necessarily the reality of it. And then it's about trying to find a way to get through to them with and to bring in that reality. Because to your point, the brilliant thing about some of these individuals that you describe is when you talk to them, they, they take you to this other place, right? They take you to this reality, which is their reality. There's no resemblance to the actual you know, the facts, but they take you there. And they've got that ability to take you there. And I think that's what makes them successful. That's what makes them inspiring. But there's this fine line between the madness and the genius, right? And then there's days when you're on the right side of the line because you're in the genius on the genius side. And this is when you're on the wrong side, um, which is, you know, you're on the madness side. And we've all had these experiences, right? Where, you know, like for an hour, you get transported. And then when the conversation is over, you just think, you know, they took me to a place which, you know, I can't believe, you know, I just, I just went there. Yes. But within all of that, right, it's, you know, it's about taking from that the nuggets of magic because there is magic in there, right? So it's, it's, it's being able to extract the things that actually are going to move you forward without and managing the negatives out, Yeah. right? And I think when you're, you know, an executive and you find yourself having to do that, that's your job. Your role is to take the good and manage the, the, the damage control, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and that's your role. Yeah. And, and the classic was, uh, you know, if you read the, the biography of um, Steve Jobs, he had moments of genius, mm-hmm. but also a bit like Donald Trump was a reality TV show host. Well, actually it was not reality TV, it was non-reality TV. Uh, because it's not real, but people in America have bought into him being this is the truth, even though the fact he lies consistently and anything he's done wrong, he always turns it on someone else and ignores the fact that he's said some awful things, done some awful things. It's never him. It's always turned it. So I think that's a fascinating area that, that you were in the midst of that. And, and at times you had to keep your sanity, but yet there were some geniuses and some inspirational moments. And we have to be careful with the word inspiration because Donald Trump to some people is very inspiring, but he's pretty much narcissistic and, and poisonous, but he, people believe it all. And they, they, they get, they buy into the conspiracy or whatever it is. So very interesting area. Um, moving on with a quick sort of quick fire questions with, PQ, meaning and purpose. What, what have you found has given your life a calling, a vocation, a, you know, what, what, what why do you do what you do? And, and even now? So, look, it's a, it's always a hard question to answer. Um, first of all, I think purpose, you know, when you're a leader, finding, defining the purpose of your organization is the, probably the most important thing that you can do, right? find the purpose and then aligning the organization behind the purpose, people need a sense of purpose, you know, and today more than ever. When I was at Fremantle, actually we worked with Kevin Roberts and 
we did some amazing work around defining our purpose as you know, a creative company, a company that created called Home. And that really defined everything we did in terms of the kinds of shows we would green lights, how we would hire people, our behaviors. It inspired people, it made people want to belong. And it was some of the most magical, I think, work that we did. As far as I'm concerned, my, my personal purpose, I think I take a lot of um, joy, I guess, and satisfaction in enabling others or creating the structures and the environments that will enable you know, teams and people to be successful and to be brave and you know, to have the courage to kind of go out there and not be afraid. There's a lot of fear in organizations. There's a lot of, you know, the structures are built to control. They're built to limit. They're built to, they're, they're rarely built to lift. And, and again, as a leader, you know, putting in place enough governments that you keep the corporation safe, but then giving people the freedom and the confidence to, you know, go outside of the period, go on the edges. You know, the magic happens on the edges. It happens in the variation. It doesn't happen inside the box. And, you know, and you want to inspire people to have the energy and the confidence to go and do that and, you know, and just push everyone, go a little crazy, you know, do those things that will sort of wow you and inspire you. So I take a lot of in sort of building the, those environments and those structures and sort of doing that, performing that role um, with, uh, you know, with teams and the people around you. Which is really very interesting to me. And at the moment, um, talking with various people about culture and the culture of the organization is often set by the CEO and the leadership team. The tone is set by the top, the fish rots from the head, various books like this. Um, and, and in this new normal that we're in, like, you know, you, you've got the whole of YouTube for EMEA to look after as part of Google, two great brands. What, what do you think if there was one or two ingredients that make a good culture, if you're trying to change a culture and 70% plus of culture change programs fail, as you know from your days at INSEAD and as a management consultant. So, so if you were saying two things that are really important to, to getting a, a healthy culture in this world that we're now living in going forward, what, what would you pick out? I haven't asked you these questions. So, so first of all, like, I think some, some things haven't changed. And, you know, when, you're, when you want to either establish culture, change a culture, or live the culture, you have to live it. And your actions have to match what you say. And so for me, a classic example of that is, again, in terms of, again, sort of my beliefs, your collaboration is incredibly important. Personally, I put a lot of um, stock in having a collaborative culture. It's a big part of the Google YouTube culture because it's very matrixed. So you actually have to work cross-functionally um, to be able to achieve anything. But if you just sort of stay on collaboration for a second, very often organizations tolerate individuals who don't live the culture because they're good performers, right? And again, as a leader, to me, that's incredibly important. If, 
if that's your North Star, if that's your culture, you have to go all the way in, li in living it, even if it hurts, especially if it hurts, right? Because again, you'll be every action you take as a leader is a reflection of what you really believe, right? Your actions speak more than your words. And so you have, I think, to be very cognizant of how your decisions are, what, what your decisions mean and the implications of your decision in terms of the culture. Um, so that, you know, so, and I don't think that's changed. Yeah. Um, I think in terms of the, you know, the world that we live in today, which is obviously incredibly virtual, it's harder, and you know, one of the things that I'm finding really hard at the moment, and I'm not the only one, is how do you keep energizing a team when you know we've been in lockdown since March? You know, before Christmas, I think there was a sense that we were coming out of it. We're now back into it. People are tired. Um, you know, within Google and YouTube, there's a lot of resources around well-being. We talk a lot about well-being. But in a way that I think people now are even getting tired of hearing about well-being because they feel the anxiety. And what we are not doing enough is treating some of the root causes, which is the pace of the work, um, the prioritization, right? And again, it goes back to what you say versus what you do. And managing that combination of empathy, incredibly important in the mode, empathy, warmth, listening to people, but combining it with some very clear prioritization on what is important. And again, freeing people up through better prioritization so they can find that bandwidth to you know, have a conversation with somebody who's going to bring them joy or maybe spend a little more time on the one project that they enjoy doing versus what they don't enjoy. To me, that actually is more important than, you know, what we've done a lot of, which is, you know, give people a lot of well-being resources, which, you know, at this point, everybody knows they need to go for a walk, you know, meditate helps, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it's really about addressing the work day and the realities of the work day. Yeah, really good. Which takes me on nicely to health quotient. HQ, often not a part of any leadership models, but it, it certainly is for us at the heart of it, mental health and well-being and physical health exercise. I'm very big into doing that myself and uh, uh, whether it be power naps or mindfulness in the morning or yoga or, you know, it's become quite mainstream now, whereas it used to be a bit wacky. What do you, what do, you do um, to look after your mental and physical health and well-being and how do you pick yourself up when you let yourself slip so i mean look for me um physical exercise is really important and i think it's important not just for you know you're probably yeah there's a health benefit but i think there's a huge mental benefit to exercise you know it helps with stress it clears your head um I think you're, you're more focused. Um, it gives you energy. I think it's just, you know, I think it's actually proven to um, medical fact that it gives you energy. I think the other thing I would say is, you know, and, and that's something that's quite personal. 
you know, I'm somebody who finds rest in activity. And I think it's only quite recently that I've actually come to embrace that. Because when you're that kind of person, a lot of friends will tell you, well, you should read a book, you should sit on your sofa, what else should take a nap, what, you know, and you sort of start to feel guilty that actually you're not doing any of these things. But actually there's a lot of different ways to get rest. And it's not just about, you know, as in physically resting, you know, you get, you get rest through activity, you get rest through having a creative activity will rest your brain, right? There's sensory rest, there's rest, there's emotional rest by you know, having a conversation with somebody who, you know, you like having a conversation with. So there's all kinds of rest that is not just about, you know, either exercising or having a better night's sleep. And I think, again, recognizing that it's a wider palette yeah. than what we typically go to, I think is important. No, that's really great. Okay, and then and then going on to other a few other quick fire ones. Um, what what about a good bit of wisdom that you live by? If we're looking at IQ and decision making and wisdom, if it, what what is a good sound bit of wisdom you live by that you'd recommend others think about? So I've always been I've always been somebody who I like to do the work. It's important to do the work. And again, that's maybe sort of quite sort of old fashioned. Um, but I think you need to, you know, as a leader, number one, 75% of what you're gonna do is gonna be about the people and maybe 25% about the strategy, but the people pieces should occupy the core of your decision making. The second thing I would say is, you know, I always think of it as a, as a butterfly, which is you're gonna be, you have to be across a lot of different things. So mostly, you're going to be going from one to the other, but you need to know when you're going to, you need to deep, really, you need to dig really deep into something. Yeah, yeah. And, and then the last thing I would say on that front is, I think for me, one of the things I've always been very aware of and, and afraid of is getting disconnected from the reality of the business. And organizations are built in such a way that there's layers of management. And so very often as a leader, you find you get disconnected from what's actually happening on the ground. Yeah. And I think that's super dangerous. And so listening, listening to the people who are actually doing the work and trusting, right, what you hear. Otherwise, you're going to crash the plane, right? If you're not listening to your co-pilots, you're going to crash the plane. And so, you know, on that front, that's why I've always been a proponent of flatter organizations. Hierarchy for the sake of hierarchy doesn't add value. And again, making sure you stay in touch with you know, those on your team who are partner facing, who are sort of out there, who are in the sales org. When I was in my Fremantle role, you know, going to a show, talking, you know, sitting in the control room, talking to, you know, your floor manager, talking to your presenter, you, got, you, you, you can't lose that sense of, of the reality. And be very wary of people who will tell you what they think you want to hear. Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, so that's always been one of my big fears is that thing of getting disconnected. 
Yeah, that's that's great. And, and actually, you've you've led me into the next question, which was about listening, about emotional and social intelligence, reading people and um, building rapport, influencing how you do that. What uh, if there's one bit of wisdom you've learned about emotional intelligence, listening and things like that? What would you share as a bit of wisdom there? So that's an interesting one for me because it's been a real area of development. When I started my career, you know, I think it was probably, it's the part of my leadership skills where I've had to work the hardest because I'm naturally impatient. And so I've had to be, A, you know, I've had to learn the hard way. I remember doing a 360 evaluation. This is years ago now. It's probably one of the roughest experiences ever because, you know, I was completely unaware of, you know, how what I said or how I behaved actually landed. And so, you know, I've had to, you know, I've been slapped a few times. Um, on that front, um, quite forcefully, <laughs> and you know, by all kinds of people. So I've learned, I've learned, I've learned. Um, but also, sort of, I think as you grow up, you become, you know, sort of more patient and more confident in yourself, I guess. And you can't listen to the others until I think you have that sort of inner confidence. I think it's very hard when you're still in that very insecure place. Yes. to listen to the other yeah. so there's a whole piece of work that you need to do internal piece of work to acquire that confidence i think before you can open up and listen to properly to the others yeah. because if it's if you're still about trying to build yourself up and if it's about yourself it's about your ego you're never going to listen yeah. right yeah. you have to get to a place where you know it's no longer about you right it's not about you it's about enabling the other and, and so that, I think, takes a shift. Yeah, that's, that's really great. And, and I find uh, when the stage of working with the CEO is to get early on to get 360 feedback from about 20 people doing a survey, and then I have about 12 interviews where I perhaps would talk for 30 minutes to different people, upwards, downwards, sideways, particularly peers is always fascinating, even in other groups. Um, and some CEOs take it very well. Uh, some go into a deep sulk. I mean, one wouldn't sort of speak to people for about two weeks. It was like it was like Donald Trump, you know, not wanting to give up the election. He just was like a little child. And as the guy said, he's got to put on his big boy pants. And I said this to the CEO, you've got to put on your big boy pants and, and be vulnerable because only the strong can be vulnerable. None of us are the complete product. We're always work in progress. So I, I find that profound. And sometimes it exposes the CEO as quite toxic and that actually they're not suitable. Um, now, some have got a, a growth mindset like Carol Dweck talks about rather than the fixed mindset. And they go, do you know what? This is tough and it's hurt me, but it's fair. I can see this and I'm gonna do something about it. Others go, they're all wrong. It's only just a couple of them anyway. No, I, I don't wanna carry on any more coaching. Stop right now, um, you're fired. Um, because you've, you've caused a narcissistic injury to them. They don't like being hurt, like Donald Trump fires anybody who gave him any bad news or criticized him. So I think that's a very interesting area, which takes me on to your resilience, which is the RQ bit, the next bit around 
uh, after emotional intelligence in 360. What have you found as a good tip to be resilient when you, you, you've had to deal with some really tough stuff? And um, what bit of resilience have you found has helped you that you'd share with other people? So I think, like, first of all, I think I'm quite an optimistic person fundamentally in that I believe you can always do better tomorrow than yesterday, right? And that should be the focus actually is, yeah, maybe this wasn't great or this happened, it was a setback, but how am I gonna find the silver lining, right? Something's happened, it's a setback, you can't change it. So what about this, what is it about the situation that actually that I can take and turn around? How do I think about it differently? And how do I turn it into a positive? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's how do I use it to pivot? Yeah. So to not dwell on it for too long, just long enough to take the lessons, but then just really try and find the way out, whether it's sideways, upwards, doing something, it's going to, you know, a setback will send you into a different direction. Yeah, yeah. And, and you remind that's, me. Sorry, go ahead. Go no, no, so that's, that's the way to approach it, right? Is forward facing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was just going to say that Dana Steele, the rock DJ in Houston for 20 years, and she met all the, the sort of uh, rock stars, uh, interviewed them. She's written various books. She was on the series the other day. I was interviewing her. And she said, yeah, you know, I... I after 20 years, I didn't have my contract renewed. I thought everybody would think I'm a failure. I'm not cool. My life has ended. But actually, I learned a lot from that. And something else came because of that. So it actually was good for me. And, and you worry what people think about you, but you'd be surprised how little they do. They're not thinking about you. They're worried about themselves. And you, you spend too much time on that. So last uh, two, or th two or three things. Uh, brand. Um, we've talked about 360s. Um, if there's a bit of wisdom about people's brand and their reputation, their image, their impact, I mean, just, I suppose we're saying don't worry about it too much, but, but, but what, what tip would you give on brand before we talk about legacy? So I think it's, it's different. Your brand is different from what people are going to think about you. I think your brand goes back to what we talked about earlier, which is your values and how you treat people. And you know what you want people to expect of you, right? It's about how you show up. Yeah. It's about right. when you show up and how you show up. And that's the other thing I think is, which sometimes it's hard when you're stressed and you know things have happened and things aren't going the way you want them to happen, etc. But I mean, it's super important and I try to do this and I don't always do it well. Some, there's tons when I slip, but when you're in a meeting, be present. When somebody wants your time, give them your time and be there for them in the moment and listen, right? Uh, it goes back to the thing of being, being there for people and just showing up with everything you've got. And there's days where you'll have more than others. Um, but for me, when I just think about, and I look, I don't think about my brand a lot. I've built it, you know, over the years, just, you know, by being who I am. But, but I do think there is something, and I, I do 
when I coach people or talk to my team, just sometimes I just say, say to them, just think about what you want your brand to be. When you think about your behavior, you know, it does define how people think of, of you and just be more deliberate about what you do and think about what, how you do lands and, and how people perceive you and, and how they, how you make them feel. Yeah. Yeah. Right. How do you make people feel right? So true. People forget what you say. They forget what you do, but they never forget how you make them feel. That's right. So always every meeting you're going in, I always encourage a CEO to think about how do you want them to feel at the end of the meeting? That's right. I know you've got a task and a decision, but how do you want the other guy to feel? Um, and, and that leads us on nicely to legacy. Um, what would you like your legacy to be in your work and in your personal life? How would you like people to talk about you? I mean, look, I think because everybody wants to believe they've made a difference, right, in sort of people's lives. Um, and, you know, whether that's, you know, with my children, you know, I'm hoping, I hope that I'll have enabled them to be the best version of themselves. Um, that they can possibly be. I was reading something one day that was saying that as individuals, we're all born with a maximum potential, right? And it's fixed. But whether you will reach that potential or not depends a lot on, you know, your experiences and how you're nurtured and how you're brought up and all those things. Um, and look, if I think about my Fremantle career, which, you know, obviously sort of I've ended, but, you know, yeah, I was. It was. Um, it, it was amazing when I left because you know I got a lot of um, very kind of encouraging, I guess, feedback of, around you know the work that you know I had done for there for all those years. Yeah. And and I suppose what that was about is again enabling people to do amazing creative work. Yeah. But I didn't do the work. But I'd like to believe that you know, the culture that we put in place enabled great people to come and, you know, to achieve sort of great things creatively, which, yeah. you know, in the turn had an impact on people's lives because maybe made them a little happier and gave them a little bit of joy when they needed it. So, um, so that's sort of how I think about it. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that. No, I think, I think you will have made a difference and you will have uh, been an enabler for other people to achieve mm -hmm. their maximum potential. So um, two last things, a, a book and then your, your final practical top tip um, that um, we're going to take from the day. Um, what, was the, what was the book you, you're enjoying at the moment that you're reading that you mentioned to me the other day? So I'm reading at the moment the uh, Malcolm Gladwell book, the latest, Talking to Strangers, which I'm finding um, incredibly, uh, incredibly interesting because, again, it's about the assumptions that we make when we communicate with people yeah. and how we believe people are transparent and so we misread cues um, and we make a lot of judgment errors because of the assumptions that we make. And I think it's, it's useful in all areas of life. It's, it's useful in recruitment. It's useful actually when you sort of manage teams. And it goes back to that listening thing, right? Which is, again, we have these images and these biases yeah. about what we think human beings, um, you know, what they communicate to you and how. Um, so yeah, I, I recommend it. 
Yeah, it's great. And and my um, uh, my gift back to you is the book to to read that is the promise that changes everything by Nancy Klein. And um, Nancy has been quite a mentor to me over the years. Um, and um, I've been trained by her thoroughly and love her approach. And she says that one of the problems we have is a thing that's rather wordy, but it's untrue, limiting assumptions that we live as if they are true. And because we're living these untrue limiting assumptions. So I don't know, how old are your children now? 12 and 17. Okay, so maybe the 12 year old might go, mom, I can't do this. Now that's an untrue limiting assumption she's living as if true. So a lovely positive alternative assumption is to say, okay, and if you could do it, how would you do it? And do you know what, within seconds, the child will go, I'll do it this way. They, they find it, they get, the mouse goes looking around the brain for, oh, another assumption. If you could do it, how would you do it? Oh, we'll do it that way. And it's just, whether it be a child or a CEO or a colleague, and, and, and like, if, if you were, the, if you were the, the head of EMEA for YouTube, how would you do this one thing? Oh, I do it this way. Great. Okay, thanks. So I love that one. Let's end with, um, and this has been fabulous. Let's end with uh, a practical top tip that you'd like as, as your favorite top tip. You might have mentioned it already, um, but, but how people could apply that practical tip, something sound that they could use. What, which, which top tip would you have? Um. One of the, it's a very early on in my career when I had my very first operational job and I was just, just thrown into it um, by this, uh, my boss at the time, who's a big mentor. And I remember I said to him, I said, but I've never done this before. How am I going to do it? And he had this great line, which I use a lot, which is, he said to me, it's easy, right? Leadership's easy. You just have to make decisions. And as long as you make, as long as you make slightly more good ones than bad ones, you will be fine. That's cool. and I love it because I think it's very liberating. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I do love that. Well, Cecile, thank you very much. It's been a joy having you on the series. You bring a wealth of wisdom and experience, whether it be from strategy consulting, from INSEAD from being the, um, the global CEO of Fremantle, what an amazing job. And now the, the head of EMEA for YouTube at Google. Uh, lovely having you on the series. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Jonathan. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you gonna do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.